1 Corinthians chapter 4. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we were cursed, we bless. When we were persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you to Timothy. My son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, he will, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but, it, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with the rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Power move. When introducing the person you want to assert dominance over, because <laughs> I like to make finger quotation marks in the air when announcing their job title. <laughs> It's perfect. <laughs> it can make their job seem rubbish. Or better yet, it gives you the impression that the title is self-appointed and made up. 
It literally works for anything. It does. Even like, this is Karen. She's a brain surgeon. <laughs> I am a brain surgeon. And that makes it look really defensive. Of course you are. You're a brain surgeon. I am an actual brain surgeon. God, if you're so smart, why do you like me so much? Uh, really good. Lockster. Mm. Um, doozy of a power move for you again. Remember, specific scenarios. Yes, I like it. When greeting or meeting someone or a work colleague or a friend, wait until they go to the bathroom, then wait directly outside the door to greet them. Mm. Once they leave the bathroom, quickly go to shake their hand. Usually their hands are still a bit wet. There's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a bit of lurking. So much lurking. But, and they'll be in a hurry to dry their hands on themselves while you stand there with your hand out watching them squirm around. They usually say, sorry, my hands are wet, while shaking your hand. So the first words they always use to you is, sorry, <laughs> submissive. Uh, well, uh, hello and welcome, uh, and welcome to you tuning in online. Uh, my name is Tony, uh, and I am the communications pastor here at Hunter Bible Church. Uh, <coughs> you can tell it's a quiet week when they get the comms guy preaching, right? Uh, I'm married to Laura, uh, if you don't know much about me, we've got two kids, four and two, Heidi and Ollie, uh, and our family are usually at uh, the Lake Mac congregation. So it's nice to be here and see your faces, well, this half of your faces. Uh, uh, it's been a while. We used to be part of New EPM, so it's good to be back. Now, power moves. Who's familiar with these? Who's seen this on Hamish and Eddie? Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Um, one honourable mention that didn't make the clip uh, is when someone tells you a cool, exciting story, and uh, you can respond with, Wow, huge if true. It's the best power move. So for example, my wife's pregnant. Wow, huge if true. It makes it seem like it's, uh, it's a made-up story. That's good. Now, uh, I don't know if you've tried these before, but there are two kinds of power moves, according to Hamish and Andy. There's the kind of jerk kind and the, uh, the legend kind. And we come to a bit of a power move in today's passage. Uh, Paul's power move is not so much the jerk power move. He's not aiming to, like Hamish said, uh, assert dominance over the Corinthians in a cruel way. Uh, it's more in the legend category. What he wants to do is to see the Corinthians lovingly brought back into living faithfully in response to the cross of Christ. That's what he wants to see. Now, it's going to be helpful to have chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians open in front of you as we work through this. And before we get into it, we kind of need to backtrack a little bit for context. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll have known that uh, there's a big problem in the Corinthian church. And that problem is that they've been kind of distorting the Christian life. Right? The way the Corinthians had thought of the Christian life is as one of success now. Right? Prestige and influence and power and status now in this life. It's kind of like in basketball, in the NBA. Have we got any NBA fans here? Yes, my people. Uh, there are two kinds of teams in the NBA, uh, in NBA teams. There's the win-now teams, and then there's the win-later teams. Win-now teams, they've got their stars, or their, their star player. Uh, everyone's in the prime of their careers. They've gone all in. They've spent all the money. It's their window to win the championship. Now, the win-later teams, these are the rebuilding teams. Right? This is my team. Okay, see, they've torn it all down. They've started from scratch, and uh, they've only got the young players, the rookies, and they're winning no games. So the win now, win later, and this is really the difference between the Corinthians and Paul. 
The Corinthians were a win-now team. They, they had forgotten about the take-up-your-cross part of the Christian life. Paul is the win-later kind of guy. That is, he understood that when Jesus returns in the new creation, that's when we reign with him in glory. But for now, in this life, well, we can expect to lose to Detroit by 50 points. And so that's where we left it last week. And these two kind of categories of thinking about the Christian life kind of overshadow our passage today. And here's the reason why Paul writes so strongly to warn them. He's really worried about the Corinthians and he wants them to get back on track. And as their leader, he wants to show them the way. So to begin with, just note how he comes to them. Paul is the leader who comes to them as their father. Look there in verse 15. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So here we have the Corinthians version of the Luke, I am your father. That's their moment. Paul claims to be their gospel dad, right? He says, in Jesus, I became your father. And what he means is, I was the one who brought you the gospel, right? That is, he came to their city, he shared with them about Christ crucified, he planted their church. So on this kind of human level, Paul is the one who's responsible for their faith in Christ. Now, importantly, he's not the one who saves them. He's not the one who is transforming them. And he's not their heavenly father. Right? All that is God's work. That is all God. But he's saying that we have this unique relationship, you and I. You've got countless guardians. You've got all these leaders ministering to you, but I'm your spiritual father. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, this might raise a question for you. You might be thinking, hang on, hasn't Paul been getting stuck into them about this very issue, showing favoritism with their, with their leaders? Uh, in chapter 1 and 3, he's already ripped into them about creating factions, divisions in their church around leaders. You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Kephas. This is what they've been saying. And so isn't Paul just a massive hypocrite here? Like he's saying, you can't have your favorite leaders, except for me. I want to be your number one boy. Well, not quite. The, the problem the Corinthians have been having is, is how they perceive their leaders, Right? They've been looking through this human lens. You know, who's the most eloquent, the most, the, the most impressive? And what does that say about me if I follow them? That is, they're looking to their leaders to give them their sense of status and value and security, identity. And Paul's been saying, no, 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 I come to you differently. Not as impressive leader, not with eloquence, but as your lowly servant. That's what we saw two weeks ago, chapter 4, verse 1. He comes as their servant, right? And even lower still, verse 13, he comes as the very scum of the earth. He's saying, how I want you to view me is as your greatest servant, not, not some idol. And that's where being their father in Christ fits. He brought them the gospel. He sees how they're going and how it's not so great. And he feels this parental burden to serve them, to love them, to help them get back on track. Basically, he's saying, 
I really, really care about you, Corinthians. And so like any loving parent, he cares too much to just stand idly by while they're in the wrong. Look there in verse 14, he warns them. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. If you were here last week, you will have noticed this tone shift from last week to this week, harsh to soft. He's just finished giving them this big reality check about the way they've been living. He's come on really strong, and now he moves to reassuring them. You can kind of imagine uh, him dictating this to, I don't know, first century Siri. He's just like, pauses and read back the transcript. Good, good, good. Ooh, bit harsh, bit strong there. Maybe can we add some emojis in to soften it? I know, next, next line, uh, I'm not writing to shame you. Yeah, good, good, good balance. Uh, he's, not, so he's not interested in humiliating them and hurting them. I just want to warn you as my kids, he says, his dear and beloved children. It's not that image of the, the harsh uh, authoritarian father figure. He warns out of compassion and tender-hearted love. That's the kind of leader he is. So he's writing to get them back on track, and now he sets them an example to show them the way. Look there in verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. He says, I'll show you the way, right? Don't keep living, don't continue living with this win-now, distorted picture of the gospel. Come my way. Imitate my way of life. And he draws on that uh, parental relationship he has. It's that it is only natural for children to emulate their parents. Uh, any parent knows this experience, for good or bad. For about a year now, our four-year-old has been putting our two-year-old in timeout. Uh, she's seen how effective it is when, uh, when we give timeouts, and she's taken that upon herself to bestow timeouts upon her baby brother <laughs> in her benevolence. And yeah, she's even put me in timeout. Yeah, it's, it's Heidi's world. We all just live in it. And she's just copying what we do. The, be- the best thing is, like, Ollie actually obeys her. He'll go to timeout. Now, the, the Corinthians, they are visual learners, uh, you'll see. They're going to need to see this in action in order to know what to do. So Paul continues, verse 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. He says, I know, I'll I'll send Timothy. He's my favorite MTSer. He's great. Timothy, he's like me. He's faithful in the Lord, and he'll represent me to you. That is, he won't come into Corinth and set up his own little pop-up church, Timmy's Good Time Gospel Church. He's going to go in and remind them not kind of reinvent, right? And it's to remind them of how Paul lived, how Paul's life agreed with his teaching, right? His walk matched his talk. Now, we've all seen cases where this hasn't happened, right? Where these things don't match up. Now, recent examples of uh, Ravi Zacharias and, and other failed leaders, is it any wonder that people say church is full of hypocrites, Right? And, I mean, at one level, we want to say, yeah, and it's not full. It's, there's plenty of room for more. Christians are all hypocrites, saved by grace, forgiven sinners, 
imperfectly living out the faith. But on another level, I feel like this passage pushes us to really take godly character in leadership seriously. Because when character fails, that's when you morally bankrupt your ministry. That's when you bring the gospel into disrepute. That's when Jesus' reputation gets tarnished. Now we'll see here that ultimately, Paul's aim is not for them to be Paul-like, or even Timothy-like. It's to be Christ-like. In verse 17, he says, it's his way of life in Christ Jesus. Later in chapter 11, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so it's not, it's not an ego thing for Paul to say, imitate me. Paul is just, he's just their YouTube tutorial of what it means to live Jesus' way. He's not saying, you know, copy me in absolutely everything I do, like how I like my coffee to which sneaker brand I buy. Uh, no, in the, in the full sweep of Corinthians 1 to 4, he's built this picture of what it means to live the cross-shaped life. Imitate me in that, he says. Because his life shows the difference between living the win-now life, living for comfort and prestige and success, and living the win-later life. One that's radically transformed by Jesus. Where you're willing to be a loser for Jesus, like we saw last week. It's the 2 Corinthians 5 kind of life. It says, and he died, Jesus died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That is, it's to live this kind of life, the one where you're so captivated by Jesus that you remove yourself from the throne of your own life and you invite Jesus to sit there instead. Where you're so sold out for Jesus that you no longer expect to receive this kind of prestige and social status and material blessing in this life. And that's what Paul modelled, that's what his life looked like. It's also what Jesus' life looked like too. He didn't, he didn't come in prestige and power and glory. He could have. He's the Lord of the universe. But instead, he came in weakness, lowly, born in a barn in the outskirts of Tamworth, uh, not in a Valcluse palace, right? He, he drove donkeys, not Teslas. And he was willing to go to death on a degrading Roman cross, for our forgiveness. Because in Jesus, in God's upside-down kingdom, lowliness shows the foolishness of living for prestige and success. And God chose the lowly and the foolish and the weak things to shame the strong and the wise. And that's how Paul conceived of his whole life and ministry in that kind of cross-shaped service. Now, I've it's worth digging into what this means for us a little bit now, because doesn't this paint a beautiful picture of the kind of leaders we want to be and the kind of leaders we want to follow? I've got three quick applications. Uh, I think, firstly, this model of leadership should drive us to pray, first of all. Pray for our leaders. And in that, I'm not just talking about our staff, but please do pray for the staff. But we have loads of people 
in our church who take on this fatherly instruction kind of role. That's how our church functions, right? From growth group leaders to ministry team leaders to kids' church leaders out there to youth leaders to husbands and families to parents with kids. Pray for our leaders. Pray for their character. Pray that they might be worth imitating. Now, one of the scary questions we get to ask growth group leaders uh, at the start of each year is, would you want your group members to look more like you at the end of this year? That's a good question. And as I've prepared this this week, this passage really forces me to consider my own life. Is my walk and my talk interwoven in such a way that I would want another person to imitate me? What about you? Now, the second one is, uh, this is why we take appointing people in leadership so seriously, isn't it? When we appoint people into positions of more public leadership in church, character is a really serious matter. It's why we open the Bible and we talk about what this responsibility might mean, why how you live really matters and reflects on your ministry, why being above reproach really matters. We don't do that to scare people off leadership, but to, under grace, take godliness really seriously. The third one is, uh, here you can see the real value of one-to-one ministry, one-to-one discipleship. You can see why we love mentoring at church. Wasn't that a great video of the MTS, um, MTS experience? That's why we love training people up through the ministry training strategy, through Harvest Mentoring. Uh, we see this kind of Paul-Timothy discipleship happening, that relationship, life and teaching married up. And it's, it goes beyond that. It's, it's why we love having a one-to-one culture at church. You know, workers meeting up to read the Bible on their lunch break, uh, students meeting for coffee on campus, youth and youth leaders, uh, mums or dads having kids' play dates and spending two hours together and maybe getting three precious minutes to, of uninterrupted conversation about God. We love one-to-one discipleship. So do you have this kind of role model in your life? Someone who will walk and talk the gospel. Are you being that kind of role model to someone? And not just within our walls, but are you being this kind of spiritual parent to someone, bringing them, introducing them to Jesus. Okay, now the power move. We know the Corinthians consider themselves powerful. Uh, Paul's kind of gently made fun of them last week. Verse 8, already you've become to reign. They think they're God's gift to mankind. They think they're the king. And so he shows them what they've been missing here in verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Paul calls them arrogant, and I think he means in the sense of kind of like a teenager boasting, like, yeah man, I could easy kickflip that gap. That's what teenagers say, right? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, uh, Paul is confident that there's no kind of kingdom power, there's no kingdom substance to their swagger, right? He says, I'm coming, when I come, 
I will conduct a test. I'm going to find out what power you have. And I reckon it'll be all talk. Uh, this week I, d- I discovered a Texan saying that I really love. Any Texans in the house? Uh, all hat, no cattle. How good is that? Have you heard that one? Famously said of uh, George W. Bush, actually, uh, and maybe famously modelled by Pharrell. Uh, I don't know, I just need an image to illustrate. That's exactly this, right? Someone who talks a big game, who wears a big old hat, and, uh, but has no action. They've got no power to back up their words. And here is a big sign of Christian immaturity, right? To be all talk and no action. And that was the problem with the Corinthians. They had eloquence. They're obsessed with it. That's all they had. They had no, no power. And so Paul says, when I come, I'm going to test whether you speak not with eloquence, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's how Paul came to them. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of life-transforming power. The power to live out the cross-shaped life he's been talking about. See, if their speech is all about impressive eloquence, how fascinating or funny they are, or having the hottest takes, or, and it doesn't translate to radically transformed lives, then it's, it's useless, it's empty. Mere talk can't bring about the kind of cross-shaped life Paul's been modelling to them. Only real kingdom power can. God's Spirit at work bringing about that kind of change. And so he ends there by saying, look, it's up to you. Do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? That's what he says in verse 21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Uh, Any Mandalorian fans here? I think I've got a gif up here. This is his version. (laughs) Cooler, cooler warm. Uh, Easy way or hard way. There is this kind of hard edge to his warning. He's not not afraid to bring discipline, to use the rod. Um, And in fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see an example of this when we pick back up uh, next year. But I, I don't think he means that the rod of discipline would be unloving in some way. Like both options require love. He simply means, should I come with disciplinary love or should I come with affirming, gentle love? Now, I reckon uh, it's worth us taking a moment to kind of dig into this idea of discipline a little bit. See, what, I wonder what you think of when you hear the words church discipline. Right? Are you up there like... Uh, whatever, it's fine, end, or is it eye roll, a uh, bit of a shudder, a bit of a vomit in the back of the throat? <laughs> where, where are you at? These are, because some of it's like, these are cult words, right? You know, I've seen the Netflix specials, church discipline. Right? Now, certainly some of us will have experienced this done very poorly, right? You've been really hurt by church discipline done badly. And if that's been your experience, I want to say, I'm really sorry. And we do need to take great care and wisdom and do this in love when we approach, when we approach discipline. Um, but, uh, yeah, there are probably a few fears behind why we find discipline hard to swallow. Um, they might be uh, fear of people leaving church, fear of you being unloving in some way, fear of, uh, fear of being a hypocrite, 
those kinds of fears. But one objection I thought of uh, that, uh, yeah, I think we see this comes up against is the cultural one. Like, we, we live in a culture that says, chase your dreams, follow your heart, believe in yourself, you know, that kind of Disney Plus culture, right? And in that culture, in that worldview, there's no place for teaching that's going to not affirm my life choices. Now, I don't know if many of us buy into that worldview, but there's kind of a Christian flavor to that that says, Jesus is my life coach, he's going to help me on my journey to becoming a better me, all that God's made me to be, right? I'm freed from my past, freed from my parents' expectations, freed from my stuffy church institution rules. And so, if you try to correct me, or keep me accountable, like, I'm out. I feel like the Gospel in 1 Corinthians really tackles that lie head on. It tells me, let go of my win-now life. Let go of my pride. Let go of my dreams. Follow the foolish, weak way of the cross. Jesus explains what church discipline looks like in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I think, there's just, I think there are two things to see here, the two kinds of discipline. Uh, in verse 15 is the first kind. Jesus tells us to raise our sins with each other. That is, this is the kind of informal discipline that happens within a church family, right? That's the brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister encouragement as we speak the truth in love, as we bring God's Word to bear in one another's lives, and as we listen and change our minds. That's what happens every single week here at church, and it's what happens in our growth group, it's what happens in our ministry teams as we meet up. That's all a form of spiritual discipline. Now, the second kind is uh, the more formal one, right? That is when the first kind fails, when the brotherly correction doesn't get anywhere. Well, then it, it escalates in seriousness and in scope. You bring, you bring other people in, you might talk to a, bring it to a ministry leader or to staff, and if even that fails, then there might need to be some kind of stepping down from different parts of church life, whether it's a ministry team, attending growth group, attending church. So you have this picture of discipline here. But even then, it's important to note that all of this is done, the formal or the informal, in the same framework of grace, the same gentle, loving spirit that desires to see the person restored, right? It's driven out of love and love for the individual, love for God's church. Now, maybe one mistake we can make when it comes to discipline is thinking that it's not spiritual, that it's purely like human institution kind of thing. It's like being a member of West's, uh, you know, member of a club. You know, Glenn has had another incident with the gravy on Thursday and we've had to suspend his membership for June, right? Like you're a club, you're in or you're out. But it's, it's not that at all. It's actually a profoundly spiritual activity. It takes God at work in His people. It takes kingdom power 
for someone to extend themselves out of, out of selfless love and care for another, for, for someone to open themselves up to that and humbly listen and grow. That is all the work of the Spirit. Now, I was, I was trying to think what this looks like in the day-to-day, if you're on the fun end, <laughs> the receiving end. Let's say, let's say someone someday does this for you. Maybe you've been struggling in some way and it's been ages since you've been able to make church or growth group and someone's noticed and they call up to ask if you're okay. How would you respond? How would I respond? Would I get defensive and angry? Or am I open and teachable? Because I know that, well, if them coming to me means they love me, it means they're they've been wise and courageous enough to take a risk with our friendship, to ask how I'm going with God. So I want to be humble enough to listen and and even to love them for it. I might not feel like it in the moment, certainly, but I want to thank God for them. They are loving me. So, uh, where does that leave us tonight? We've, We've seen a leader who, out of fatherly love, appeals to his children to lead cross-shaped lives. He sets them an example in how to do that, lovingly, gently, and he corrects them as necessary. And he shows them that only the gospel is what holds true power to live those things out. And so how am I going? How am I going at following those kinds of leaders who walk and talk the gospel? How, how am I going at being that kind of role model to someone? Would you pray with me? Our great God, thank you for the example of Paul here in this passage who modeled to the Corinthians what a cross-shaped life looks like, who, like you, acts out of fatherly love and compassion to gently correct and discipline your children. Lord, help us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Lord, we thank you for blessing our church richly with leaders who do model this, who are spiritual models to others, who walk and talk the gospel. And Lord, please help us follow them and be encouraged by them. And please help us to grow, to embody that kind of leadership ourselves, that we might lead others to know Jesus. Amen.